This week's episode is brought to you by Tush Baby. Welcome to the Modern Mommy Dog Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast. Today, we're talking about something that is so important to me as a working mom, and that is how to be a working parent with special needs kiddos. And my kid has autism, and so we're going to talk specifically about kids who have neurodivergence, who are differently wired, and we're also going to talk about working moms and the school system for kids who have special needs and how to navigate that with confidence and with advocacy for yourself and for your child. And so I have with me today a specialist in this area. Deborah Isaac Schaefer. She's at DebraIShafer.com. We'll put that in the show notes. But Deborah, you and I met on LinkedIn actually, which I love that. I built so many cool connections there. And it was so wonderful. You and I started just commenting on each other's posts and, and really resonating with what we had to say. And so welcome to the show and thank you for being here to talk about this really important topic. Thank you so much, Whitney. I really appreciate you taking the time and really focusing in on this area because when you talk about work-life integration, this is this is a serious one that really requires time and attention. So I'm really delighted. Thank you again. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your background, what got you excited about this topic, or maybe not excited, but invested in this topic, and, and what you do now to help parents in this area. Sure. I'll give you the short version. I had been working at a big five management consulting firm. I was the director of HR development. I began reading federal and state special education law and thought, okay, I really like this. It's pretty complex. And I started coaching parents just a little bit here and a little bit there. And for the past 25 years, I've had a national practice working with parents to help them navigate from through school from kindergarten through college graduation because it's a very complex arena. It's dynamic, it's individualized, it's overwhelming, it's confusing. And for working parents in particular, we did some research, my former company, I had a consulting firm called Education Navigation, where we were providing these benefits to employees as an employee benefit. So if you look at kind of the laundry list of benefits that companies provide, we were doing this as a company benefit. And it was really first to market. No one else was really addressing these needs. But the reality is we did some research and we found that average working parents are spending 10 hours a week navigating school-related issues. That's a lot of time. And if Mm -hmm. you're a working parent, that's a lot of time. And it's not simply being called to school in a crisis, which is happening all the time. In fact, 
right now the numbers of parents who are already being called and told you need to come and pick up your child at camp because they have behavioral issues, they need one-to-one support that they can't provide, it's off the charts. So you're a working parent, mm-hmm. you're working, and you're being called, you need to come and pick up your child where you thought, okay, well, we may have two or three weeks of this camp program. It's not. It's just not happening. So it's a really complex arena. Absolutely. And you and I were chatting before we started taping. I We had to reschedule this because I had my own issue that was happening with my daughter where I had to go pick her up from school. I had to go pick her up from a birthday party early on, on Sunday. I was supposed to be spending some extra time with my younger daughter and, you know, in the middle of licking ice cream cones, like, sorry, honey, your time is done. We have to go pick up your older sister because she's having too hard of a time navigating. Tell me in your experience with coaching, because your experience is so vast, what are some of the major issues that parents are looking for help with? What are the specific things that are saying are really pain points for them as they try to integrate their work and their personal lives? It's a spectrum of things. And I would say at the kind of early end of the spectrum, it's dealing with securing a diagnosis. Many working parents, many parents are afraid. Many parents want the diagnosis. And right now, the average amount of wait time is six to 12 months. Mm -hmm. That's a really long period of time for parents to be thinking, I think there's something something going on here. I'm not quite sure what it is, but we can't really get the evaluation. Then after the evaluation, it's shocking for many parents. And I will say to parents, take the time that you need to integrate that diagnosis into your own reality. However, I'm not going to let you float down that river called denial for a long period of time because now we've been, we need to pretty well kick it into gear. So the first part might be considered getting the diagnosis or waiting to try to get the diagnosis. And then it's a question of, okay, now what do we do? What do we do? My child is five and starting kindergarten. What are we supposed to be doing? Well, then there's the special education process. Eligibility, that's another hurdle. Many parents have a 504, which is only accommodations. Parents are oftentimes confused. A 504 is only accommodations. Think of that like supports, like a pillow. And IEP are the direct delivery of services. So the next hurdle or the next pain point may be, how do we go from a 504 to an IEP? That's the eligibility process. And then it becomes navigating the IEP process, IEP meetings, documentations, evaluation reports. You know, parents receive 75-page evaluation reports. They'll read it, and they will have no clue what it means. Mm-hmm. They don't know what data means. They don't understand what the scores mean. They don't know how to correlate that data to the development of the child's IEP. So that's another pain point. Well, what's a standard score? What's a scaled score? What am I supposed to be looking for here? Well, part of what I do is I teach parents how to go through these evaluation reports because I review them as well and explain for every evaluation report that you receive, this is what I want you looking for. These are the areas of deficit that I need you looking at because that's where we develop the services. And then it becomes an issue of what do we do about the social issues happening at school? What do we do about transition? 
from elementary to middle school. That's a huge bump from middle school to high school. That's an enormous bump. What do we do if we're thinking of college? What are we supposed to be doing in 10th and 11th grade? I just had a parent send me an email this morning that said, my child was evaluated when she was four. She's now a rising senior in high school. Is that evaluation report good for college? No, it's not. Because Mm -hmm. your child at four Mm -hmm. is vastly different than they are at 15. So while Mm -hmm. that data is good for baselines, which is kind of, okay, this is our starting point, it doesn't apply anymore. So the child needs to be reevaluated. So these are some of the pain points, but the reality is, and you know this, it's very individualized. You can have five children with a similar diagnosis and it's going to manifest differently. There may be commonalities, but it's going to manifest differently. So some parents in a particular school district may be having a great experience where another set of parents are just beyond. As you were talking, you were actually in part answering the next question that came to my mind, which is whose responsibility is it? Like in your perfect world, who would be taking on more ownership? And I think what you're providing in terms of your coaching, of course, is helping to allow the parents to have a more full understanding of their child, more full understanding of how the system works. Are there things that the school should be doing and that employers should be doing on a systemic level to also make it easier for parents? What else do we need from those pieces? Because maybe not everyone could find someone like you. I mean, I'm, I hope more and more people as they're just listening to this have found you and then now they're going to access you directly, but there's only a few of you, you know, out there in the world. So are there things also we should be doing from a, at a systemic level to support these families? Yes. One of the things, and I'm just going to back it up to parents, parents need to really understand advocacy and what that means. And part of what I do, because I've had as long as, if not a little longer in the business world, is I teach these business skills. You need to know how to negotiate because the difference between you going into an IEP meeting for your daughter and me going into an IEP meeting with you is that you're coming from your heart. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm coming Mm -hmm. from my head. So I'm able to navigate the issues quite differently and objectively, whereas for you, they're talking about your child. Uh, You know, don't even go there. That's the reality. So parents really need to understand. And it has really nothing to do with what do you do for a living? Because I've supported CEOs who go into IEP meetings and they can't speak. So Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with, you know, what do you do professionally? You know, what are your skills? What's your EQ? It doesn't matter. You go into these meetings oftentimes with people you've never met and the team members change. And you have to kind of back up the train and provide more information that perhaps you already provided a few months ago. So a lot of it really does fall on parents, which means increasing their competence and their confidence to be able to go into these meetings because parents are equal members of the team. Oftentimes, school districts try to shift that power, but that's not the way it works. Yes, parents know their child best. Educators know their child well because they're in a different sort of a setting, but it's really equal and needs to be equal. In an ideal world, I love the way you ask that, in an ideal world, it would be less adversarial. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it can be incredibly adversarial. 
parents walk out of IEP meetings feeling like they were just hit by a truck going 80 miles an hour. I spoke mm-hmm. to a parent recently who said, I came out of my child's last IEP meeting and we didn't know where I parked the car. We couldn't figure out where did we park the car? Are we in this parking lot? Are we in this parking lot? They were shell shocked because these are complex issues and this is a complex arena. The flip side in terms of employers, and I'm really glad you asked that question. When we talk about caregiving, which as you and I both know is a huge arena, this falls within the context of exceptional caregiving. I often say Mm -hmm. this is Herculean caregiving. This is caregiving on steroids. You know, this is not, I have an eight-year-old who had a bit of a stomach virus and I had to be called to school to pick him up Thursday at three. No, this is a combination of what I call chronic and crisis issues. So you're on a heightened sense of alert. You're, You're always kind of, you've got that antenna up. So for employers, the number one thing is flexibility. But we've got another issue. It's almost like, okay, we'll make a sandwich here. Many parents of neurodiverse children do not disclose to their managers or their leaders that they have a neurodiverse child. So as a manager, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. She was just called last week, and now she's got to take a half a day now, and now there's something else going on. So without a culture and a climate where open and honest communication can happen, there's going to be those barriers. Managers are not going to understand. The employee, the working parent isn't going to disclose. And the flip side of this, maybe not the flip side, is employees are more likely to inform their manager or their leadership that they have an aging parent with, let's say, Alzheimer's than they Mm -hmm. are to say they have a four-year-old just diagnosed with autism because that road is much longer, much longer and far more complex. There are overlaps. One of the sessions that I do talks about from autism to Alzheimer's, because this is the life of exceptional working caregivers. So kind of going back, flexibility is huge, but having the ability to communicate with your manager and share your reality, this is what's going on, is also huge. There are other benefits that can help. Many employers are providing, let's say, over the summer tutoring, which is wonderful. We talk a lot about childcare. Well, yeah, childcare matters, but when you have an exceptional child, it's not just childcare. It's in-home speech therapy. It's in-home occupational therapy. It's in-home behavioral therapy. It can be a combination of all, and parents are basically navigating and managing all of these different appointments. I can remember so clearly when my child was initially diagnosed, I was running between occupational therapy three times a week, speech therapy twice a week, seeing the psychologist because we were looking for behavioral supports as well, running this department, having to travel. It was absolutely overwhelming. Now, every parent doesn't have that, clearly. You know, they're single parents, who may be living in an area that's not near immediate family, they, who, who are they going to have for support? It's a really mm-hmm. complex arena. That's why we have to look at it as exceptional caregiving. And the truth is, this really falls within the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging arena because right now there's a very big push 
toward embracing neurodiversity in the workplace. And that's absolutely wonderful. However, we have to get it right in school to prepare these children for the world of college, employment, and life. So while we're looking at neurodiverse employees right now in the workplace and doing everything we can as we should to accommodate their needs, we need to back this up. We need to be sure that a second grader is getting what he or she needs and a seventh grader and an 11th grader because school basically prepares children for life. That's really what it's all about. Being on the go with your little one has never looked so cool or been so comfortable. Tush Baby is a unique strapless baby carrier to help carry kids comfortably and stash your things conveniently while also saving your back and saving you loads of time. Let's get real. Traditional carriers are kind of a pain and Tush Baby makes it easier than ever to consolidate your things while also doubling as a hip seat for your kid. You know I'm all about efficiency and that's why I'm all about this product. My favorite is the vegan leather and black. But mama, whatever your style is, there's a Tush Baby carrier that you'll love to wear. Modern mamas need modern, stylish accessories and Tush Baby has got your back, literally. So head on over to tushbaby.com and use the code MOMDOC, M-O-M-D-O-C, to get 15% off of your carrier. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. And what you said was was really powerful. I, I have to admit to, to all the listeners, because I have my own kiddo who's in this arena emotionally, right? I keep on thinking of all of these examples of how this has happened for me. I'm the most drawn to digging into this idea of disclosing at work and being able to have these open, honest conversations and what that means for working moms who already feel like they're at a disadvantage because they have to prove themselves that they're the best worker in their field. And then when you have this child who needs exceptional care, and, and again, chronic, like you said, like, I thought you already just had to go get them from school. I thought you already had to make an accommodation to leave work early. So that way you could deal with their issue that they're having with this big transition that that feels when you talk about that to your employer over and over and over again, like it maybe gets old for them or like it would make them think that you're less valuable as an employee. And so I can appreciate this idea of from the get-go disclosing what is the root cause of your need? What is the root issue that is really forcing you as a parent to have to make some pretty big decisions, again, chronically, but then also in crisis sometimes to choose to do the thing that's going to support your child in that moment so that they can be successful long-term. And if that's so difficult, if you haven't already had that transparency in your workplace and that acceptance and culture that there are kids that are differently wired and that do need an exceptional level of care. Yes. You're, you're, I mean, you're, you're hitting on something that is, is so vitally important. We talk about the great resignation, as you know, or great reevaluation or great, whatever you want to call it. So many working mothers in particular of neurodiverse children are saying, see ya, bye, not going to do it because you and I never talk about work-life balance ever. I always talk about integration Mm -hmm. and even harmony, which is a new term that I heard a few months ago. And I thought, oh, I really like that work-life harmony. Mm -hmm. That really kind of works. Every day is different when you're dealing with chronic and crisis issues. A chronic issue, you can pretty well 
prepare for and you can somewhat anticipate. Crises, they just happen. You know, the crisis will happen right before you're walking into a meeting or as you're at the airport ready to get on a flight because you're doing a speaking engagement 3,000 miles away. That's when it happens. And unless you have a support network, that's the other piece of it for employers, looking for ways to provide a support network. Employee resource groups are wonderful. ERGs are great, particularly if you're focusing in on working parents of neurodiverse children, because many times employees can become kind of a quasi-support network for each other. But that's not Mm. enough, because when you've got these kinds of real, real life, real work issues, we need to stop and say, what are we doing here? How can we possibly support these working mothers in particular? We want to retain them. They're valued employees. You know, we don't even have to talk about the cost for turnover and replacement and all of that. That's well spelled out in multiple areas. This is about, you've been working for this company for seven years or 15 years, Mm -hmm. and you're really valued. Oh, wait a second. Your 15-year-old was just diagnosed with mental health issues? What does that mean? What is that going to require of you? And as a manager, what's that going to require of me? What do I need to understand? What do I need to realize about your reality so that I can be a support for you? I don't know mm-hmm. if that really answers it, but it's there's the self-care piece too. You know, as a working mom, I can say for me, the bags under my eyes are not from the last you know six months. They're from the last number <laughs> of years. I mean, it's yeah. true. Self-care, you just, you really can't find it. You have to try to kind of niche out a little teeny piece if you can, but you're so focused in on your child because you're responsible for showing your child the way. And when we think about it, you know, when we think about our job, for example, if we're struggling in our job every day, what do we do? We typically quit. We resign. We go find another job. Children can't do that. So if they're struggling in school, yes, parents can change placement and that's a whole other issue. Yes, as parents, you can change a child's placement. You can pull your child out of public school and put them in a private school or a charter school. That's not what we're talking about. But if the child is struggling, imagine waking up every day knowing, oh, this is never going to work for me. Or Sunday nights, behaviors start to emerge because they're anticipating, oh, no, I have English tomorrow and I'm having difficulty reading. It's, it's so individualized, but we have to remember if a child is struggling in school, that's their job. That's their job. They can't resign. Yes. Children do do school avoidance and that's another issue, but it's their job for many years running. So it really falls to parents to not just understand the diagnosis. The diagnosis is, It's a label that we use to push towards services and supports. We need to focus in on the child's individual needs and stopping the struggling. And it it can stop. It takes a lot, as you know. It takes a lot, but it can stop. So I don't know if that really answers in terms of employers, but employers have a responsibility. One of the things that employers are doing, which is absolutely wonderful, is they're giving, let's say, $25,000 toward infertility treatments. Okay. Well, I want employers to take that $25,000 and give it to parents of neurodiverse children to use for private speech, private OT, private behavioral therapies, ABA, whatever it may be, because 
We've got reduced numbers of providers. We've got incredible wait lists. Parents are struggling to try to kind of put together this mosaic of providers for services. And there's also a financial cost. These, yeah. the, this is a huge financial cost as well. Absolutely, there is. And I think that is where employers come in. I mean, I think about for my daughter, we had a caregiver who was in our home who helped us out for the first five years of life. And she wasn't just a caregiver. I mean, she really, in the end, now I realize looking back, hindsight 2020, because she had so much experience and was so wise and skilled that she was a social emotional development trainer for my child. And she taught her all of these, you know, like, Oh, I think you forgot your manners when you can find your manners. I can chat with you, you know, and in a way that absolutely worked for her. And that cost us a lot of money to have that individual person in our home who would make it. So then my daughter wasn't having to fight herself or resist herself so much during the day that then when we came home, we had a like major tantrums and meltdowns. So that money was worth it for us, but it cost a pretty penny. And of course my employer didn't contribute to that at all. So I absolutely think money that would provide a support for caregiving for all of these therapies that we need for our kids The other thing I was going to say in terms of that school piece, because I have seen so many patients and I've actually been involved in meetings where you're meeting with the school, it feels super adversarial, you feel like you don't know anything, even though, like you said, you're the founder, the CEO of a huge company, your pediatrician is actually a great place to go for that we can be advocates for you and be in a care meeting for you. Some of the larger pediatric practices also have care managers. So in our practice, we have a family support specialist who is trained in behavioral health. She's a social worker by training and she knows all of the laws. She knows everything about the 504s and the um, IEPs. And so she's able to come alongside families and sit in the meetings and translate or advocate within the meeting for for the parent. So even our psychologists have done that where they've sat in the meetings with the school and really explained what's the neurodevelopment of this child, what are the specific needs that they have, and also trying to teach the educators about what are appropriate responses to this child when they do have an outburst, have a tantrum, have a meltdown, or need something specific. So that's one additional place to go. Not all pediatrician offices are that well-rounded, I would say, as mine. But as you're seeking out a pediatric practice, that would be what I would be looking for if you do have a neurodiverse patient, if if at all possible, just because we are there to advocate for you. And we do have resources that are allocated for that. And that's wonderful. The, the vast majority do not. That's the sad reality. There may be a nurse practitioner who has some familiarity with ADHD, but certainly not enough to go into an IEP meeting and do what you're saying, translate this to that. For, for the behavioral piece of it, that's where functional behavioral assessment is so vitally important. And parents aren't familiar necessarily with what that means. The reality is the skills that are being taught at home, they have to be able to carry over to other environments. That's the real, that's the real learning piece. You know, we can learn something or teach something rote. This is what you say in this situation. However, Mm -hmm. take a child who is neurodiverse and put them out on the playground during recess. It's a blank sheet of paper. They, they, because the situation didn't quite add up the way I was taught that it was supposed to add up. 
I'll just tell you a very quick story about my son. One of the things my son was taught in elementary school was that you can say to a girl, I like your hair. You know, your Mm -hmm. hair looks pretty today. Well, you can't say that in middle school because it's interpreted very differently. Well, teaching those nuances is so very important. It's not just the transition in terms of IEPs from elementary to middle. It's child development. As you know, you're a pediatrician. It's very different when you're in second grade to say something than when you're in eighth. You know, the way Mm -hmm. it's received is very, very different. And that opens children up for additional risk because Mm -hmm. they said something they were told, this is an okay thing to say, but they didn't realize that five years later, it's not an okay thing to say anymore. That's why it's not Mm -hmm. just social skills delivery, it's social thinking. There's a big difference. You can teach a skill, but to, to teach to think, to be able to evaluate a situation and make a quick determination, should I say this or can I do that? That's a completely different ball of wax. And that's where a lot of neurodiverse children, particularly on the spectrum and with ADHD, get into trouble because they thought they were supposed to do this or that this was okay and it's not really so okay anymore. Talk more about that. Talk more about the functional assessment and because I'm sure there are listeners right now who their interest now is fully peaked because that really is the, the one of the big things I think for parents, right? Like, how could you have just said that? It's because their thinking is so black and white, you know, that then it's difficult for them to have that nuance. So dig into that just for a minute for, for me before we close about what that means, what, what parents need to do in order to get that functional assessment or what that means. And then who would be the person who would help to teach those thinking skills to kiddos? Every child that has behavioral issues doesn't require an FBA, which is called a functional behavioral assessment. Now let's flip it. There are children and teens for whom their behavioral issues, and many times it's behavioral slash emotional, but I have a problem with that word. We can talk about that another time. Many children who have behaviors do need a functional behavioral assessment. Now, the correct way to do an FBA is a BCBA, a board certified behavior analyst, or a certified school psychologist who has extensive training in doing FBAs. And an FBA really needs to be done across environments. So the clinicians that I've worked with in the past that have done FBAs, they're at home in the morning. They're looking at what's happening at home in the morning. They're looking at what's happening when the child gets off the bus. They're looking at multiple settings in the classroom. You know, some kids are really strong out of the gate in the morning. They're ready to go. You know, Mm -hmm. eight o'clock, I'm strong, I'm on, all systems Mm -hmm. are firing. And then by noon, they're done. And many children are the flip. It's like, oh, it's morning. I can't think straight. But come two o'clock in the afternoon, they're on. So the assessments, the evaluations, the observations need to be done across settings as well. And then from that point, we get a, a functional behavioral assessment evaluation report. And we then translate that into what do we need to be doing now in school? What are the additional supports? Some children need what I've called for many years, a crisis intervention plan. If this Mm -hmm. happens, what do we do here? One of the issues that's been raised fairly recently on a number of different platforms has been, if you have a neurodiverse child, and I hate to raise this, and there's a shooting in the school, that child needs something clear in their IEP about Many children can't just transition on a dime. 
they can't just run into a closet. It's like, wait a minute, they stop, they freeze. Well, that's an important part of an IEP. And believe me, Whitney, I hate to even say that we need this in this world, but But for many children, we do. We need to know the people who are responsible for the child, and it doesn't have to be a one-to-one aide, it can be the classroom teacher, or it can be the lunchroom monitor. They need to read the IEP. And I'm just going to add this, if I may. One of the things I strongly recommend that parents do is that they have a sign-in sheet in the principal's office or wherever the main office may be so that every single person responsible for your child from the recess aide to the lunchroom monitor reviews that IEP and they sign it and date it. So that way as a parent, you know that it's not just the speech therapist who reviewed it. It's not just the classroom teacher that reviewed it, but the person at recess where the behavioral issues tend to emerge because it's an unstructured setting, that person reviewed the IEP and knows that, okay, wait a second, rather than playing dodgeball, which is a no win for many kids, Mm -hmm. we're going to let that child sit and read or sit and write or color. That's really important. I really needed to just put that in there as something I strongly advise that parents do. It may not be something that is typical, but for my parents, it is. Because I need to be sure, and parents need to be sure, that every single person has reviewed that document and has signed off as doing so. Okay, here's what I'm hearing you say as the main takeaway. And actually, I'm really, I'm, I'm thrilled we had this conversation. And I think people are going to come away from this with a lot of, a lot of hope. Is that as parents of neurodiverse children, obviously, it's going to continue being challenging. You and I have talked about this idea of a roller coaster, like there's ups, and then right away, there's a down, and then there's up, and then there's a down, you can't prevent all of that. But that there are a lot of steps that you can take if you have the right information and the right advocacy behind you to make it so that you have a team who understands your child more fully that you understand your child more fully in a number of settings and that you can get the supports for yourself if we can advocate enough for that in the workplace and at school, if we can have people like you who come alongside us or people like our care managers in my office who can then make it so that your child has the best chances possible of doing well in their current environment and as they grow into adulthood. Absolutely. If you can, open the conversation in the workplace. Start talking about neurodiversity in the workplace, not necessarily focusing solely on current employees who may be neurodiverse, many of whom don't self-disclose anyway. But if it's a neurodiverse employee, they may have been a neurodiverse child. And they had a parent or parents working to help that child reach the point that they could be your employee. Let's back it up and recognize that it's the working mothers and fathers in your employee who are doing everything they can to get ready to have their child be the next employee. Absolutely. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Again, you all, you can find Deborah Schaefer, Isaac Schaefer at Deborah, D-E-B-R-A, I- letter I, Schaefer, S-C-H-A-F-E-R.com. We'll put that in the show notes. 
I hope that you feel inspired and hopeful and supported and that we're here along with you. If you do have a neurodiverse child or if you don't, that you have even more oomph and an impetus to be helping the parents who do, who work alongside you in the workplace or who work for you. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thank you so much. Mama, it is here and available for download. It's the new Modern Mamas Club app. We are so ready to join you on your personal journey from conflicted to centered. We want to take you on an evidence-based path from feeling conflicted all the time, from feeling pulled in all kinds of directions, from feeling burnt out to feeling really purposeful and aligned. As you move through your working motherhood experience, no matter what is happening around you. So go check it out in the App Store. Hey, Mama, if you want more of the Modern Mommy Doc podcast, make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag Modern Mommy Doc. If you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well. Thanks for listening.